Welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 314, 314 of the podcast. Now, my theme or my topic for this first segment is, I've just jotted down the phrase, Trinitarianism and trouble. Trinitarianism and trouble. Okay, so I believe that I'll just start off with um, what I believe about the structure of Trinitarian discussions. God wants us to know the truth about him, and there are two fundamental basic truths about God. One of them is that we Christians are monotheistic. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we are monotheists. The second truth is that God, this one God, is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us to disciple the nations by baptizing them all in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every New Testament epistle begins with a salutation of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit is not mentioned because, as I take it, following Jonathan Edwards, I believe that the Holy Spirit is the grace and peace. So, Christian, the Christian faith is inescapably Trinitarian and inescapably monotheistic. All right, so one God, three persons, blessed Trinity. One God, three persons, blessed Trinity. Everything's fine until we get to the Q&A, and somebody says, yes, but what does that mean? <laughs> now, we have to be aware that the church spent five centuries wrestling with this, five, five centuries getting our definitions down. So, the fundamental basis for our Trinitarian faith is what the Scripture teaches, and we need to pay very close attention to the guideposts that were established for us in the Nicene Creed and in the definition of Chalcedon. So, those uh, guardrails are established to keep us from veering off into some weird heresy. The weird heresies are things like, well, the, problem, the whole problem is created by Jesus. So, Jesus is a, a man, and Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is a man, and Jesus is Yahweh. And how do we bring those two things together? How, do we, how are we to think about this without veering into things that are silly? Or veering into things that are damnable and heretical, and you know, how do we protect ourselves? Now we have to, as we are discussing these Trinitarian realities, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that we are utterly dependent on Scripture. Number one, and number two, we have a responsibility to stay within the Orthodox framework that the early fathers established for us at Nicaea and Chalcedon. Within that framework, we have then so number one, scripture, number two, within the uh, Nicene framework. The third thing is that when we talk about Trinitarian realities as finite creatures who breathe through their nose, we have to realize that we are like June bugs trying to debate quantum physics. In other words, Everything about this is over our heads. We are taking our truth from Scripture on faith. We are accepting what the Bible says, and we are receiving 
receiving the boundaries, receiving the uh, guidelines that the fathers have handed down to us. And we want to be careful, as, as long as those things are acknowledged, we want to be careful not to be relegating or popping off about someone else's uh, orthodoxy. I'll, I'll, give you one exa- I'll give you one example. Orthodox Trinitarian theology affirms that God has one will. There are not multiple wills in God, but God has one will. Now, if God has one will, and you suggest, as I have suggested, that the Father is authoritative, the Father is the ultimate authority, and that the Son is sent into the world, the Father, which the Gospel of John says in multiple places. We have to distinguish between places where the Son is sent, for example, to Jerusalem. It's the Father's will that he go to the cross. It's the Father's will that he go to Jerusalem. It's the Father's will that he be betrayed and handed over to sinners. Uh, but, but there, we're talking about the Father's will regarding the incarnate one, Christ as the incarnate one. But what about intra-Trinitarian realities before the incarnation happened? So, when the Father has the Son go to the cross, we're talking about the incarnate Son going to the cross, which means that the obedience is a human obedience. Christ is submitting to the will of his Father in his humanity. Well, the Bible doesn't just say that God the Father sent Christ to the cross, doesn't just say that he sent him to Jerusalem. It also says, repeatedly, that the Father sent the Son into the world. Well, ascending into the world is not the same thing as going into Jerusalem. It's not the same thing as going into the hands of wicked men. We're talking here, prior to the incarnation, if Jesus coming into the world is Jesus coming into the incarnation, the sending has to be prior to the incarnation. Okay? Now, here's the June bugs debating quantum physics part. There are some people who are zealous for orthodoxy, and God bless them for that, who know that God has one will. They know that God has one will. And they say, talk sense, man. How can the Father send the Son into the world when they have one will? The Father and the the Father's will and the Son's will and the Spirit's will are all one will. So consequently, it is nonsensical for you to be talking about authority and submission, the Father sending and the Son submitting prior to the Incarnation, because they have one will. Now, I freely and cheerfully grant that I can't do the math on this. I can't go up to the blackboard and, and uh, give you the formula that explains all this. But I can say, with, I, can, I can answer this with a simple question. Does the Father love the Son? Let's, let's leave out for a moment whether or not the Father sent the Son into the world. Does the Father love the Son? Now, how is that possible with just one will? How can the Father loving the Son be anything other than the Son loving the Son, and the Father loving the Father? The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, which is all to say that nobody's loving anybody, <laughs> right? Well, that, that's obviously nonsense. We, nonsense. We know from Scripture that the Father loves the Son, and we know that the Father loves the Son everlastingly. From before the, before the world was created, the Father loves the Son, and I can't explain that either. But if the Father can love the Son, and they 
have one will. And I'm not violating anything by saying the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, even though God has one will and one will only. Then why can't I say the Father sent the Son, and the Son was sent, even though they have one will? However you explain the love of the Father for the Son and vice versa, however you explain that, just apply it to the sending. Always will be God. So, continuing with our podcast. This is uh, episode 314. Our word for this week's harmartiology segment is kakao, kakao, K-A-K-O-O. And it is translated a number of different ways. There's a bunch of different ways of translating this. I'm going to list them all here at the top, which should give you a general sense of the meaning of the word. It is rendered as entreat evil, made minds evil affected, to vex, to hurt, or to harm. Kakao. To entreat evil in modern terms uh, would be to harass or to persecute or to treat harshly. In Acts 7, verse 6, it says this, And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. So entreat them evil for 400 years means that the Israelites were going to be treated harshly for 400 years. In, a little bit later in the same chapter, uh, Acts 7, verse 19, the same dealt subtly with our kindred and evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. So they dealt subtly with our kindred and evil entreated our fathers. So that's meaning harshly treated our fathers, treated our fathers evilly. The next instance is more a case of stirring up an evil disposition, souring somebody on somebody else. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Made their minds evil affected against the brethren. So, what does that mean? It means that they basically they worked and labored to sour uh, one group of people against another group of people. They they um, planted seeds of uh, malice, plant, planted seeds of animosity, cacao. In Acts 12, the word is used to describe the outbreaks of persecution. Uh, Acts 12, verse 1, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. To vex, there's our word, vex, cacao. And then Paul is encouraged by a word from the Lord, where he says that he will not allow anyone to hurt Paul. This is from Acts 18.10, For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. So, God says to Paul, I'm not going to let anybody hurt you. I'm not going to let anybody vex you or harass you or harm you in any way. And then Peter tells his readers that no one will harm them if they set their minds on that which is good. Uh, This is 1 Peter 3.13. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Who's going to harm you if you be followers of that which is good? God don't never change. All right, so moving on to our book review uh, portion of our podcast. This is episode 314. Uh, the book I'm, I'm going to re- recommend to you now is uh, called From the Marrow Men to the Moderates. From the Marrow Men to the Moderates. And basically, this is a, a book about Scottish theology and the various um, controversies and disputes and so forth in Scottish 
theology in the course of the 18th century. The book is by Donald MacLeod and uh, is basically 1700 to 1800, from the Merrowmen to the Moderates. The Moderates would be basically the liberals and the proto-liberals, and the Merrowmen, well, the Merrowmen controversy reminds me not necessarily in the details of the uh, of the doctrine but in the in the way the controversy proceeded it reminds me a lot of the federal vision controversy where a bunch of people involved in the controversy just simply didn't know what they were talking about there was a book published called the marrow of modern divinity and a number of Orthodox Scottish ministers, Thomas Boston included among them, found the book to be very helpful. But a controversy arose. The General Assembly condemned the book, and it was basically, it was one of those things where a controversy arose, and there was way more heat than light, way more heat than light. And one of the reasons I picked this up is I wanted to, Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book delving into the Marrow controversy. I think his book, it was a very good book. I think his book is called The Whole Christ. But I wanted to dig deeper into the Marrow controversy because for some years now, I think, uh, the whole thing has reminded me of, of the Federal Vision, where there were some reasonable theological points that needed to be nailed down, which did not get nailed down because some people at the front end started yelling. So, if you're interested in Reformed theology, if you're interested in historical theology, if you're interested in learning how to stay out of presbyterial catfights, uh, any of that, then, then this, I think, would be a good book for you to bone up on. From the Marrow Men to the Moderates, uh, and it's all about 18th century Scottish theology. Donald MacLeod. Mm-hmm.